0: Welcome to TBT on air in this podcast, we will explore the need for technology companies and governments to improve upon their partnerships with insight from specialist guest speaker James Griffiths, the co-founder and technical director of CSA Cybersecurity Associates. Welcome, James, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me on.
0: To start off, please feel free to introduce yourself and just give us a bit of background on your career.
1: Hi, so I'm I'm James, and as was mentioned, I'm the, the technical director and co-founder of Cybersecurity Associates. Um, my background is quite a, uh, an interesting one, some people would say. Um, I started by joining the army straight out of school um, at the age of 16 as an apprentice uh, with the Royal Signals, working in, in radio communications and satellite communications. Um, believe it or not, I was deployed to Bosnia before my 18th birthday, I was 17 years old and I was in Bosnia. Um, I've worked in, in multiple roles within, within the IT workstreams, so both um, building networks um, as well as maintaining networks from an IT background. Um, I also helped um, build and repair schools and universities over in Afghanistan and Iraq as part of my military service. Um, And I've also moved into satellite communications. And then we come into the world of cybersecurity and information security towards the the end of my career, um, where my last four years were, were based at the Joint Cyber Unit based in GCHQ at Cheltenham. Um since leaving the military um in 2014, um built and grew cybersecurity associates with my business partner David Woodfine, um who was also the commanding officer of both joint cyber units, so the defend- defensive unit that defends the MOD's network and the offensive unit where I was working. Um and we've you know we've worked in pretty much every every sector um around the around the world. Um We've got clients um, around from British Virgin Islands uh, to financial to critical national infrastructure. So I've had a large exposure to a, a lot in in my career, including you know cybersecurity and security operations um, in governance space as well.
0: That's a really like remarkable career, I have to say. And your your history of working all over, especially at such a young age. Um, with the government on cyber security um what are the key areas that you have found governments are lacking in
1: so it's it's quite an interesting question that's actually because um when we were in the military we always thought um that the government and the military did things really badly um and then we left the military and went out into what I call the real world, where everybody every really is, um, and realised actually it's not really that different between what we were doing. We just had more stringent controls and checks around it compared to what normal businesses do and normal normal people do on the day to day day to day work. Um, one of the things that has come to light over the past three and four three or four years is um, with the creation of the National Cybersecurity Security Centre and the the bringing of the what used to be the hidden GCHQ part and and the government space staying in the background into the limelight to start to help businesses understand risk, understand the threats that are coming towards them. Um, And in turn, that's also helping the government improve their own cybersecurity internally through the national cybersecurity strategy that's come out recently again, um, and also helping guide and educate um, not just um, government Uh, local councils, um, national government level people, but also schools and the education piece as well, which which is quite a key thing as well.
0: Uh, How about with the advancements today in AI and machine learning? um, If these were developed further, how would you think they would affect the UK job market?
1: That is a very good question. It's it's the kind of the uh, the AI robot scenario, isn't it, where we where we rely on you know artificial intelligence to do all our work for us, as opposed to having to go and go and work anymore. Um, my my honest answer around that is, um, you know, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning is it's a route to um, simplify some of the the tasks that we do continuously on a day-to-day basis Um, and by using that kind of technology and that kind of capability it means that we can then focus our efforts on other things that we were maybe not having time for or not having as much resource to be able to put into so you know the likes of um oh it's a really what would be a really good example So the likes of a a supermarket shop a really really basic example a supermarket shop When you used to go to the till, there never used to be the conveyor belts that you used to be able to load all your shopping on and bring it all the way to the till. and then to scan it to then at the other end. So that's an advancement. And that's not AI or machine learning, but it's something that makes life easier for both the person that's coming to the shop and also the checkout assistant who's having to scan everything through. You know, you could go down to AI and machine learning with the likes of, you know, facial recognition or product placement. Um, so um, using that to be able at airports, the e-tags on your passports now. So you can actually, you know, have your passport scanned at an airport, look at a camera, it will identify all your facial recognition features. It will then make sure that that matches to a certain statistical percentage to say, let's say it's 99.9%. You would hope it's 100%, but nothing's ever 100%. Um, And then it matches it with your passport photo on record and what you've got in your passport. And then it opens the gates to allow you entry. Um, So that's where the kind of things will come in. But there's always going to need to be um, us as as human beings to be able to manage, maintain, um, audit, secure... This, these creations we we have. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be. Well, I would at least hope there's never going to be, be the scenario where you know we get taken over and you know we're not needed anymore because someone has to have come up with these ideas first to have been able to create them and put them into production if that makes sense um but i think i think you know i think it's fantastic i mean you know machine learning especially in, in schools at the moment you know kids are being taught it by raspberry Pis, you know to start to look at different code bases that you can use to identify things and make things easier um, and that that is you know it's really fantastic seeing that happening um but it, you then get the other side of where you know it, it either becomes then big brothers watching with all the with all the cameras and, and everything and biometrics and, I mean, take China as a prime example. You know, you can't go anywhere in China without your face being seen somewhere by a camera. They've got the largest, you know, by um, demographic, the largest amount of cameras deployed anywhere in the world. Um, Some people say that's great for security, but not maybe for civil liberties and and freedoms. So there's a a fine balance between the two um but from a workforce perspective you know I, i would hope that my my children are writing code that that build towards machine learning and ai algorithms that improve our quality of life you never know it might be machine learning and ai that solves you know um the the um the climate change issues um but you know that that's the kind of thing that we would be thinking
0: I say with um learning obviously uh, as a part of that, could you tell us at all about the NCSC Cyber First programme?
1: Yes, yeah, so so CSA was lucky enough to get involved at the very beginning um, when it was the Cyber School Hubs programme. Um, and there were, Gloucestershire was chosen as the, the kind of the incubator area to trial the program out, um, to get industry involved, to help go into schools, to um, to be able to enthuse and inspire the younger generation. And it wasn't just based around cyber. You know, cyber was the main key part, but it was all based around the STEM, the STEM subjects. So, you know, maths, science, technology. Um, and it was noticeable that there was nothing in the national curriculum with regards to it. So um this is where this this the cyber schools hubs that then became the Cyber First program was born from. Um and it, it got um it started off as just this small pilot with three schools which were acting as the, the hubs and then all the spoke schools came off it in Gloucestershire and then it became it came went national with the Cyber First scheme. Um now within Cyber First, there are a number of you know number of age age bracketed areas. You start off with you know cyber cyber adventurers. Um, And you've got trailblazers and you've got defenders, futures, advanced. And it's all bracketed from 12 years all the way up to 17. And the NCSC program now has um, university bursaries that are available for children as well to apply for as part of the scheme. And they also bring in cyber graduate placements. And there's an apprenticeship scheme that forms out of it as well. Um, And and you have a lot of industry partners um, that go into schools and do um, inspirational talks. You know, the likes of what I'm doing now here on on this podcast podcast is um we go in and we talk to the whole of year year 11 or year 10 we go to careers days and talk about the opportunities within cyber security and information security what careers are open to them and not just the children but when on those careers days when the parents come around even the parents didn't understand these opportunities were available to them so you know people tend to push the children down a certain route as much as we say we don't and um, we we want our children to do as best as you know the, the best they can um, and this the, the ncsc cyber first program has given schools the opportunity to access resources equipment um globally over the uk that normally they wouldn't have access to and um, because they may not have the funding to be able to you know have a load of raspberry Pis come into a classroom for students to use for a week and then hand it back again but um, it's you know it, it's that kind of thing that is, is really is really the driving force behind the, the Cyber First program.
0: So really great uh, learning development, uh, especially when it comes to the next generation being prepared for even further advancements. I'm a little bit jealous
1: of some <laughs> of I, I, I wish I had all this when I was at school, to be honest. Um, oh, I definitely it, wish it, I did. It, it's one of it's one of those things where you you always want to make sure that the next generation has something better than you had, um, you know, or your children have a better life than you had when you were growing up, because it's just naturally the way that we are as human beings to want to improve our own lives therefore improving future generations lives Um, but yeah it's been it's been absolutely fantastic getting involved not just from my perspective but also from all our staff's perspective as well because we've got and we actually had about two of our we've got two apprentices currently on the degree apprenticeship um and then we've got one of our staff who came in as work experience at 16 and never left and he's a permanent employee you know and, and he's been with us now for two years um you know so it's it's those kind of things that um it, it it shows that it works it is what it is basically what it, you know it's yes there are there is a lot of negativity out there about stuff like this like oh my god you're teaching children to hack no we're not teaching children to hack we're showing them the art of what's out there in a safe environment so they can ask questions you know you you try and get i mean we we work with the local police as well and they they teach the computer misuse act um and they try and help children that we're going down that darker sided route to bring them back onto the light side without you know, without any you know, criminal record or anything like that. So there's a, there's a whole bigger piece around, around the national strategy around it.
0: Uh, I should say the, the developments there are amazing. Um, and the developments in general with technology over the last few years have been largely positive, uh, minus obviously the negative of hacking and ransomware. Um, however, government involvement in tech firms may stand as a potential security threat. Um, What are your thoughts on how this can be mitigated or managed?
1: So so that's, that's another very good question, actually. So you could look at this as a security threat for both sides. So it can be a security threat to governments, but it could also be a security threat to businesses that are helping governments and how much access governments then have into knowing what the businesses are doing. Um, so from that perspective, from a government perspective, the threat would be that um, you know, the government goes through a vetting process and a clearance process to make sure that all people are at a certain level. And then having organizations join in um, opens them up to risk of, well, they've got to trust that that organization has the same level to make sure that nothing can be, you know we're talking about insider threat, we're talking about blackmail, we're talking about industrial espionage in, in effect from that perspective. Um, but but one thing to note on this is industry is already engaging with government and it has been for many, many years um, to help government grow technologically. Um, it's just recently that there's been more of an effort where the government's actually realised that, you know what, we can't do we can't keep bringing civil servants in to do all this. We need to you know, outsource the resource for the greater good, um, and that's where that government bit has come in, and that's why all this came about. Where you know they've, they've asked for industries to help more. They've realised that you know you've got new tech startups starting up all over the UK and all over the world. You know, every every minute of every day, um, and some of the concepts and the ideas they're coming up with are absolutely amazing. Um, and that's why you know the, the NCSC has the, the 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 program where they will um, help startups to be able to um, to grow and to benefit from funding and then find investors to to take the product to market. Um, But from from a, if you flip that the other way around though, from a business risk perspective of someone working with the government, then obviously it opens you up to the government potentially having more access to your systems or more access to your resources than, you would normally allow for, from an external organisation, so it's kind of third-party risk, but from both sides. Um, I think I think it's fantastic that the government's actually gone out there publicly now and stated, look, we need more help from industry, um, because you know that's going to create more jobs. In, in reality, you know there are so many people out there that, that might be struggling, especially post-COVID or the zombie apocalypse, as I call it. Um, you know, from, from that perspective, that there are people that have great ideas, great concepts. They've Maybe been out of work because because they've been furloughed, and then maybe those technology firms that were doing really well pre-COVID went under because they couldn't facilitate it. And having this public statement now going out means that there's a drive there for them to engage now with industry to say, "What have you got? Show us what you've got. And if we like it, let's bring it in. We'll we'll help, invest, we'll develop." We've got all these problems that we need you you all to help us solve, um, and we're not going to be able to solve it on our own because do, the government doesn't have the resources. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's finite, whereas you've got multi-million, potentially multi-million pound companies. When I mean, we're talking about the, the, the big organisations like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, um, some of those big organisations, they've got R&D sides that are already helping and working, but then you've got smaller organisations that are now starting to come up and saying, actually, we've got a really good idea here, but we just can't fund it how do we do it and then that works so it works both ways to help um but no it's, it's going to be it's going to be good the next, the next couple of years i think are going to be really exciting within the tech space really exciting
0: i think obviously because we've spoken or touched on the negative side the the hacking with the tech space and how much it's growing um i wanted to know what you think the role of ransomware protection in both obviously government and businesses uh what role that plays
1: Ooh, ransomware. So we, unfortunately, and the sad fact is, you know, we, we at CSA deal with organizations that have been been hit by ransomware quite a lot, uh, mainly from an instant response perspective. Um, and it's always, um, it's always heartbreaking listening to people. When I mean, we had one example before Christmas where, um, you know, the, the IT director had just started in the role and he'd been in less than a week in the organization and they got hit. And it's just like, you know, he hadn't even got his feet under the table yet, and he was having to deal with this. And it was, a, you know, a global incident. Um, and unfortunately, um, the old adage where you know, oh, we're not big enough to be hit by ransomware. The attackers won't care. A lot of it's scripted, and everybody, everybody can be hit for it. From someone at home as a, just a standard, you know, normal user, all the way through to you know the SMEs, um, all the way through to to one hundred organizations who are you know dealing with this this plague of, of ransomware that's going on now. Obviously. A lot of government resources have been put into supporting businesses, especially in the UK, and I know the US is doing the same as well, um, to help them recover from, from when an incident happens. Um, but there are also a lot of insurance policies um, out there now that are starting to take or look at cybersecurity uh, in a different light because a lot of existing policies will we'll protect you, and there was no audit there. There was no idea of what level of protection the company has that they're protecting. In the policy so now a lot of policies are having things written in like you must be cyber essentials certified as a minimum you must have two-factor authentication enabled as a minimum before they will write the insurance policy so they're trying to put the emphasis back on the organizations to spend a little bit of money to save them a lot more than than if ransomware was to kick in um and, and unfortunately it it comes down to a lot of the time education you know and and making sure that we we're patching our systems correctly and we identify what's public facing that the attackers can hit and people don't click on links in phishing emails if you don't recognize where they come from you know even a good one is everybody got hit by spam so people always click the unsubscribe well what happens if the attackers link the unsubscribe as the attack not anything else in the email so then people unsubscribing to get rid of spam and i can see on your face that you've done this before you know, everybody does. iPhones are really helpful. It says, "Oh, you. you This might be part of a mailing list. Would you like to unsubscribe?" Nobody just clicks unsubscribe. And and you don't I've, think I've about I've the definitely consequences. Definitely
0: unsubscribe many times. So,
1: yeah. So, so things like that. You know, just that straight away, the attack is going to win because we are still in the mindset and you know we, we talk about the generational divide between people my, i mean my, my two daughters grow up on technology you know they're they're they're, they're nine and gone gets wrong get told off nine and nine and twelve um and they've grown up on technology so they understand it a lot better you know they they communicate to all the friends on it whereas we still talk on phones and okay we switch to facetime and whatsapp and everything else but from their perspective it's natural to them to have that um Whereas the older, I class myself as an older generation, here, the older generation, we're still learning everything that's going on from what becomes natural to them. So go two generations in front and actually that education piece might be null and void because everybody knows not to click on the unsubscribe link or knows not to click on a link in an email because they've grown up with it ingrained in them that they don't do that. So um, but for I them, think it would
0: become like common sense.
1: Yes, yes. You're not allowed to use that word though. Common common sense. Unfortunately, we we say that a lot to a lot of people, um, and it is common sense. But it's common sense if you know it already. If you don't know it, then you've never been taught it. Then why would you do anything different to what you've already been doing? So it's you know that 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 education piece, even at home as well, is quite a quite a big key key thing.
0: It's really fascinating, and I've definitely learned a lot from that. <laughs> And with that, we would like to thank you all for listening to this TBT on-air podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please sign up for access to TBT premium online and mobile content, including the latest global trends, news and insights. Our online publication allows you to access unlimited credible knowledge and daily information through written articles, podcasts and webinars. To do this... All you have to do is visit www.tbtech.co.